Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. You know, I've learned that that's really the only way you can heal mm. and repair is by being willing to kind of take a step into the dark. So the Enneagram is really useful for navigating that step into the dark because it functions like a map. It helps us show, show us kind of what we pay attention to and what we miss, mm. you know, our blind spots and what happens when we feel reactive and want to defend ourselves and the cost associated with that move. So I find that, again, it just dovetails beautifully with deeper therapeutic work. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Living Centered Podcast. Today, I am so excited about this episode because it feels like one that's maybe been in the making for a while. After almost a year, I would venture to guess that at least a third of our episodes, someone mentions the Enneagram. So if you've been listening to the podcast and are tired of hearing us say the Enneagram but never fully explain it, this episode is for you. As you'll learn in this interview, the Enneagram has been around for centuries, and it offers a really beautiful map into personal exploration and understanding. That's why we decided today to commit an entire episode to the Enneagram. Today's guest is the incredible Evan Barbie. Evan is a certified Enneagram teacher, and as a dominant nine, you'll learn what that means later, one of the nine personality types that the Enneagram identifies, Evan's approach as a facilitator and a business owner is highly collaborative. She believes that personal and professional development work doesn't have to be boring or monotonous, and I can promise you that learning about this ancient Enneagram tool is not going to be boring or monotonous today. Evan focuses on practical application-focused experiences that really do stoke curiosity and inspire meaningful change. Evan serves on the board of directors of the Narrative Enneagram, the foremost Enneagram training body in the field. She is deeply committed to the DEIA initiatives and really supporting bringing the Enneagram to underserved populations. If you want to know more about the Enneagram, the Narrative Enneagram, or even just books to get started, we've really loaded up the show notes today. So make sure that you click on those to get a few more resources. I hope that you love this conversation as much as I did and that it inspires you to dig a little bit deeper into some self-reflection and self-compassion. Grateful for you today, friends. Without further ado, our friend, 
Evan Barbie. I'm so excited to be here today with Evan. Uh, Evan is a friend and an Enneagram consultant, and she actually did some work with our leadership team mm-hmm. a, a couple of years ago now, mm-hmm. but that was really transformative. And one of the things that I love is that Evan's on the board of the Narrative Enneagram, and I feel like their way of holding the Enneagram and the knowledge of the Enneagram is really like overlaps well with the work that we do at OnSite. It's got a lot of depth to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, psychology is woven into it. The The holistic full body experience is woven into mm-hmm. it. Um, and so there's just a lot of great overlap. So wanted to have Evan here today to talk a little bit about herself and the Enneagram, both. Mm-hmm. Okay, I would say the Enneagram has come up probably in half of our episodes. People just self-disclose. <laughs> yes. As they're talking about themselves, what number they are. Wow. And so Mackenzie and I both were like, we need to have somebody on to explain this <laughs> at some point for people that don't know. Because we always feel the need to like, have know. a disclaimer and then we don't yes. give it its full weight. And people do it in a way like while they're describing like, well, you know, I do this because I'm an eight. And then we have to stop saying what? You're an eight on the Enneagram. What does that mean? Yeah. You know, the challenger, call it out in some kind of context. That's so amazing. We, thought we would just bring you in as <laughs> yeah. the expert. Demystify the Enneagram yes. for everybody, would you? Sure. Well, that wasn't always the case, that yeah. everybody knew their type and talked about it, you know, in conversations. Um, you've heard me say this before, Lindsay, but when I first got into the Enneagram, people were actually kind of intimidated by it. My parents thought it was witchcraft. Oh, so <laughs> it's not, they, they know that now, but um, yeah, it's had a huge resurgence in mm-hmm. recent years. So it's a very cool time to be involved with this work. And I do a lot of different things with it. And you've been kind of studying the Enneagram for a long time. How long have you been, when did you become aware of it and how did you become aware of it? I heard about it in 2009 and began just reading every book I could get my hands on um, and studied with Russ Hudson beginning in 2010, off and on for about a decade. He's one of the like wild forefathers of the yeah. Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, he's one of the more well-known yeah. teachers. He uh, teaches in New York quite mm-hmm. extensively, and uh, he's written many books with his teacher and mentor, uh, Don Riso, and um, contributed a lot for sure. The first book I ever read was called The Wisdom of the Enneagram, and it was one of Russ's books. And so I studied with him off and on for 10 years and then did my formal training with the narrative, mm-hmm. which Lindsay mentioned. And that's a group in California. They're actually scattered kind of all over the country, but they do uh, a lot of their programming prior to 2020 in the Bay Area of California. And uh, like Lindsay said, fell in love with this method. Mm. It's called the narrative method. And um, it's a way of illustrating what the Enneagram describes through the lens of human experience. So we interview types Mm. about their experience and it really debunks a lot of the stereotypes. And at the same time feels very um, empowering to be heard and witnessed and validated in that way. Uh, so often times my experience and what a lot of people report is that they, they feel like they get in touch with a deeper level of compassion Mm. and to parallel your point, Lindsay, that's certainly what I experienced at LCP, Mm. much of the same process unfolding 
it, by different, different means. Tools. Yes, yeah. different tools. Totally. That's really, you know, the Enneagram is useful uh, alongside therapy. It does not replace it by any means, but it yeah. can really reframe your experience in a powerful way and allow you to make good use of that information. When something's kind of clarified internally, you can work with it. Yeah, I think the word compassion, when you said that, I feel like identifying myself um, as a seven on the Enneagram really opened up a lot of compassion for myself, self-compassion of like, oh, this is why I function the way that I do. And just with that understanding came a lot of love and part of my journey mm -hmm. has been a big part of that. Mm -hmm. What do you identify as on the Enneagram? I lead with a type nine mm -hmm. and I have a pretty heavy eight wing. I can um, see that. That <laughs> right. makes no sense. <laughs> Russ Hudson said once in one of the trainings I went to, that's the most conflicted of all of the subtypes. I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I certainly feel conflicted often because I'm the <gasps> peacemaker or mediator and I have a challenger wing. So. Even within yourself. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. Yeah, it's been interesting to kind of fall in that system at one of these points in which you're holding two very different impulses inside. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. really interesting. Mm -hmm. And so what was the, when you feel so strongly in those two, how does someone with their, you know, just kind of discovering the Enneagram or they're looking into it and they're saying, well, I feel really this way or I feel that way when it comes to even like your wing, your eight wing, how did you lean and say, no, I know I lead with a nine and I have an eight wing versus I lead with an eight and have a nine wing? I think the basic strategy of the nine yeah. was what I could track back through my whole life experience, mm, okay. which is, you know, attempting to find a sense of belonging by, mm. you know, to put it bluntly, by erasing myself mm. and going along with other people. And it's very different from the type eight strategy that's more kind of powerful assertion of oneself in order to feel autonomous in their own life. So very different yeah. next door neighbors. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, but type nine was certainly more true of most of the chapters of my life. So we think about it kind of like figure out which pair of shoes fits best mm -hmm. and that's how you'll get the maximum benefit. But knowing kind of what wing the number to the right or the left is dominant mm -hmm. is also really useful because it describes kind of your style. Mm. So it, it adds some flavor to your, your uh, dominant type. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. So for people that are just hearing about the Enneagram yeah. or perhaps somebody has told them, you know, like what their Enneagram number is, what would you say like the best way to begin to like explore the work of the Enneagram is for someone? Stay off of social media. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. <laughs> I love that. Don't research the Enneagram through a Google search or mm -hmm. via Instagram memes. <laughs> You'll get a lot of opinions. Mm -hmm. You'll get a lot of different representations, but you won't necessarily be getting the Enneagram. So... Um, my favorite book to begin with is a book called The Essential Enneagram, and it was written by Dr. David Daniels and okay. one of his colleagues, a PhD named Virginia Price. And it's a great little primer. There's it's a like self-test in there. Yes, 80 you pages have it. or something. Yes. I have it. It's great. Yeah. I think you can buy it for eight bucks on Amazon. It's well worth the price. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but there's a great self-test in there mm-hmm. that I find to be a lot more accurate than some of the other online assessments because it really requires that you tune in yeah. and you consider the material rather than just answering yes and no to a bunch of questions. Mm. So it immediately requires some thoughtfulness and yeah. introspection. And then it, there's just a great overview of the system, talks about kind of the big themes that run through each of the nine types, our adaptive strategy, how we communicate, what makes us reactive, just a ton of information in 80 pages. And there's some developmental practices in the back. So it's a great place to start. I use that book with all of my clients pretty much and often refer to it in my work with them. So that's a good place to start. I think the Narrative Enneagram has a ton of information too. Helen Palmer's website, Mm. Peter O'Hanrahan, his website, Helen's now retired, but mm. Peter's a core faculty member and has been teaching for 40 years and just a wealth of information. I think that is what is interesting because it feels like it just kind of came on the scene in like, I don't know, 2016 or something. Like you, I felt like in the circles that I ran in, especially in Nashville, mm-hmm. you couldn't turn right or left without people talking about the Enneagram and to hear you say, this person's been teaching on it for 40 years. Like you've been studying it for a decade where it has this very deep history. And then you are immediately saying, don't go on social media. And so <laughs> what is the heart behind that? What is what is behind that statement? Have you seen people um, quickly jump and find the wrong number? Have you seen people quickly jump and box themselves in or box other people in? Like why the thoughtful, deep study? Great question. This is something that I think about a lot. And I'm constantly kind of chewing on this idea that deeper work and Mm. wisdom traditions, like the Enneagram, which actually dates back to the fourth century. A lot of people don't know that. But these really old practices that involve meditation and mindfulness and introspection really kind of fly in the face of modern day culture that's all about immediacy and convenience. Mm -hmm. So this is the point in which I think the Enneagram can be really interesting. And then when it gets to actually applying the work, Mm -hmm. people tend to lose interest. Yeah. (laughs) Because it will open you right up and it will reframe tendencies and patterns and your reactivity in such a way that honestly is kind of difficult to look at. Yeah. And the point of that is so you can incorporate that self-awareness piece in and make some fundamental change in your own life. So it's very parallel in terms of therapy. A lot of people are resistant to going to therapy because they're afraid of what's going to come up. I know that that was certainly case in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't want to open Pandora's box. What's going to be behind the door. Right. Yeah. Right. So you can't blame people, but you know, I've learned that that's really the only way you can heal Mm. and repair is by being willing to kind of take a step into the dark. So the Enneagram is really useful for navigating that step into the dark because it functions like a map. It helps us show, show us kind of what we pay attention to and what we miss, Mm. you know, our blind spots and what happens when we feel reactive and want to defend ourselves and uh, the cost associated with that move. So I find that, again, it just dovetails beautifully with deeper therapeutic work. 
Uh, but to your point, you know, to, in answer to your question, I feel like our culture does not necessarily value the pause. Yeah. Mm. It's yeah. so necessary. I um I think I, similar to you, I, my first exposure to the Enneagram was over a decade ago. And at the time, I went online and did one of the assessments, and then it gave me the things that were, like the numbers that were my top scores, and mm-hmm. you read a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, they're like, oh, this is it. And it's that easy for them because they fit very clearly in the more stereotypical behaviors mm-hmm. of that number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, as I like kept learning more and more about it, I'm like, oh, this number that I tested as, I'm realizing there's like more nuance to it and it doesn't fit as well as I thought it did. So it sent me on this journey really looking for my number, which lasted several years. And it felt like every time I kind of tried to latch onto a new number, I could like see be- that behavior showing up, mm-hmm. but then there were like layers <laughs> under it that I would have to like peel it back and be like, okay, but what's behind that? And so the difference between knowing the behaviors that you might act out in mm-hmm. your day-to-day versus understanding your core motivations yeah. absolutely is like can be really difficult mm-hmm. for some of us. People that are close to me like be like, are you sure you're a four? <laughs> and sometimes I wonder myself. But really, if you look at some of the deep patterns they are, of, the, of the motivational patterns, they're there, mm-hmm. but it doesn't, I don't act them out in mm-hmm. ways that are as typical for fours. And so I just think that like, there's probably so many people, one, that are mistyped. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's also like just so much power in the journey of discovery of like, for me, like being able to sit with it and like start to question the layers and mm-hmm. realize they were there. Like one of one of the numbers I stopped along the way on was a three, which is an achiever. Four is the authenticity. And so one of the things that I started to uncover was I had this pattern of really like wanting to build things mm-hmm. and then not liking them because they weren't authentic enough. And so being able to identify, hey, like, this authenticity piece is winning out over this desire for performance. Mm-hmm. And that's creating inherent tension in my life was so helpful. Absolutely. And such an aha that oh, like, yeah. now that I can be attuned to that, I can like be aware of how to create a different pattern mm-hmm. versus yes. building and deconstructing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so I just think beautiful. that there is... Um, so much richness to it that often gets overlooked mm-hmm. and would encourage people to s- start with maybe not a simplified test that's electronic that's just going to feed you a number and then latching onto that, but really doing the work of learning about all the numbers and mm-hmm. all the subtypes yeah. and all the stances and all the different information that's available just to see what really sticks. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then there's this side of it where people get get excited, you know, when they first meet the Enneagram and then they want to type their friends and their family because yes. they want to build a bridge there. But it's kind of like going to therapy to fix another person. Mm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it never works somehow. So really doing exactly what you did is how you use the Enneagram mm. uh, in alignment with its true intention, which is liberating you 
you know? Right. And getting to know you, kind of charting the inner territory in a way that's very personal mm-hmm. and re- and requires discipline and thoughtfulness and all of the things that we're talking about. Uh, but I'm glad that you've had that experience. Yeah. And I mean, I think that a lot of people's resistance to the Enneagram is like, oh, the, then they think this is this box of behaviors that they yeah. have to live within mm-hmm. instead of realizing, oh, this is awareness to the ingrained patterns that I can take that pause that you referenced earlier and mm-hmm. choose, do I want to act this way mm-hmm. or is there a way that would be more helpful for whatever like desired outcome I'm looking for? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's kind of the difference between horizontal development, mm-hmm. where you just become more self-aware and a little yeah. more skillful in how you you know, connect to other yeah. people or do relationship, and vertical development, where you're actually transcending something beyond your patterns and reactive responses. You're showing up essentially differently in the world than you might have otherwise. That's a very powerful thing, but it's not something anyone else can do for you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, b- habit that comes forward, and I certainly am guilty of this in my own work with the Enneagram, especially in the beginning, was observing behaviors and making assumptions about people. Well, mm-hmm. you have to be an eight because, you know, you're black and white in your thinking. Well, that's not necessarily the case. So it is a very personal journey and um, people are often mistyped by therapists or, you know, people excited about the Enneagram yeah. or, and there's, there has to be kind of an undoing process <laughs> around that where yeah. we kind of clean the slate and start over and say, what's going to serve you best? So, um, I like the practice of trying on different Enneagram types and getting the benefit out of it. Why not? Just try on a different Try hat. it on. Yeah. I love that. And I remember the first time I kind of started like diving into it, I remember someone saying, which one like feels like someone's reading your mail? And I felt different than other types of personality um, assessments and things because it did feel like, oh, these are all of the the behaviors, the reactions that maybe I don't love. Or this feels like, it felt like it was an opportunity, like you were saying. You can't ever again say you didn't know, but now you have these things and you get to choose what you do with it. The same way I think therapy is like, hey, I'm going to dive into these patterns that I function in and cycles I keep finding myself in. And I get to choose what I want to do with that. Do I want to develop out of that? Do I want to grow? Do I want to lean into the tendencies that I find serve me the best and develop in the other areas? But it, it just felt so different and so expansive. But I think taking the next step further and continuing on that that self-assessment journey, moving past self-awareness to self-development, I think has been the biggest thing for me. And I think even in a work context, people um, on our team, we use it a lot, but it helps understand people because you have a similar language. So instead of just saying, hey, you are this, but if we're both doing our own (laughs) reflection and knowing that, it gives you the same language and it helps I think I can approach people differently on my team or understand their motivation or understand how to come alongside them in different things. I think I've really seen it in a work context and I've really seen it in a relational context with my husband and I as we've kind of dived into the two things of, oh, this just annoyed me about you, but really I can see your heart behind that in different, Mm -hmm. deeper ways. So Mm -hmm. 
That was just me on a tangent. But. Well, I think your instincts are firing. Well, thank I mean, you. Part of the reason I love the Enneagram is you become multilingual. Yeah. The language of a two is very different than the language of a four, even though they're both heart types. Yeah. You know, there's subtleties that you begin to notice and, and put to work in a productive way Yeah. for navigating other people. Yeah, I, I, it's funny, like, thinking back before I had any reference of the Enneagram, I think I naively kind of thought everybody thought more like me than they did. <laughs> yeah, that's So that was, like, true. one of the, like, big ahas is, like, oh, like, people's motivations and their how they're responding mm-hmm. is so unique, not just in the nine types, or the 27 subtypes, but like yeah. at the individual level. I mean, I, I learned that at OnSite too in the Living Centered Program. Like mm-hmm. we all have different experiences that we're bringing to the table and it, that I'm not right and the way my way of thinking is not right mm-hmm. and somebody else's way of thinking is not necessarily wrong. You know, it's just... That sounds so obvious. It's not, though. It's, it's actually a pretty rude awakening yeah. <laughs> at some point. You yeah. know, that's exactly what happens when people kind of get involved with the Enneagram is there are nine different ways to pay attention. And we're attuning to nine different data sets to the exclusion of others. Mm. And we have to incorporate things that we didn't value or pay any attention to if we're going to see the big picture. So that is that piece of the Enneagram that I love so much that everybody's perception is necessary. Mm-hmm. And maybe I love it as a nine and I'm all yeah. about yeah, kind of like all the opinions. inclusivity. Yeah. But I think Helen Palmer said in one of the trainings, and I believe she was paraphrasing someone else, she said each type is 100% correct in their mm. perceptions, but only subjectively so. Oh, that's and great. And so that's where humility really enters into the picture is <gasps> I have a gift. I have this thing that I care about and I have this thing that I can see so clearly and I'm limited. Mm. So I need you to weigh in yeah. on this. And that's really the shifting point with a lot of the couples that I work with, either personally, husband and wife, mm-hmm. partners, or professionally, yeah. folks that work together on leadership teams is that shift into appreciating the differences rather than feeling threatened by them. That's really mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. I have, because we're friends, I've heard you speak some, you've, you're from a large family uh-huh, and you have a lot of types represented in yes. your family. Yes. Eight um, of the nine. Eight of the nine. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's part of the reason I love this work Mm. is that I have a personal connection to each of these archetypes in such a profound way that it just felt like the biggest gift in the world to discover this tool and recognize my sister and my little brother and my parents, you know, in these these pages, this book. Yeah, know, written by someone I've never met or hadn't at the time. So We're talking about our family. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we and and when you did work with us, the leadership team that you were working on, I think we similarly have like eight of the nine types. But to be able to sit and realize that as we come to make decisions together mm-hmm. as a group, or you're navigating family circumstances, that you've got all these different perceptions that mm-hmm. people are viewing 
the same situation through. But that there's such a gift in the wholeness that brings that we can't see it totally, completely just as ourselves, as mm-hmm. one as one part of the nine. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, you can see it as a challenge or you can really see it as like the beauty of diversity and mm-hmm. making sure that they're different. It makes me think of how we um, sometimes talk about emotions at onsite of that emotions are not good or bad. They just are. And every emotion has a gift and has a shadow side. Mm-hmm. Like the gift of anger is that it awakens us to justice um, and it motivates us to take action when something's happening that is unjust or wrong. The shadow side of anger is that we can become pious or we can um, be violent or other things that might be at the shadow side of anger. And so I think when you were talking about the Enneagram of everybody's perspective is welcome and is a gift, it's a larger piece of the pie. It gives us a fuller view of any situation and how do we view the people in our lives, not as like, well, you're coming at this and thinking so differently than me of what gift do you bring that I can't see? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's like a gift that Lindsay often brings to us is innovation and a desire for authenticity and returning back to what's true. And, you know, like kind of back to our roots, I see that so often in our team. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Mackenzie brings the fun. (laughs) I try. I try. (laughs) Dynamic duo. So much more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey friends, we just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. And we are just so grateful for you and the way that you show up every week um, to join in on these fun conversations that we get to have. So we want to make the podcast the best that it can possibly be as we go into a new year. And we want to hear from you. Yeah, we really just hope that this is a resource that serves you where you are and that we're giving you what you want to hear. So we'll ask you, you know, about preferred length. We'll ask you about guests that you'd like to hear from, topics that you're curious about, but really just wanting to gather feedback so that we can continue to build out the podcast next year in a way that it meets you and resonates. Awesome. So if you're willing to take our survey, you can head to the show notes or go to onsiteworkshops.com slash survey. And we'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much. So I'm wondering, and we have you here, I've heard this and haven't done a ton of diving into it, but how much does, is it like nature versus nurture when it comes to the Enneagram? Our early childhood experiences, how much do they then inform the type that we might later identify as? Mm-hmm. It's a really good question. And even though this teaching tradition has been with us for a very long time, yeah. There has not been a great deal of research on the topic, although that is changing. People are becoming more interested in doing that. But the going theory today is that it's both. Okay. That you are hardwired in a neurobiological sense Mm. to be in what the Enneagram calls a triad. So you're born a body type, a heart type, or a head type. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And their brain-based differences from individual to individual that accounts for a lot of our kind of different perceptual styles. Yeah. And from what we can tell, you know, as I as well as I understand it, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I don't call myself an expert, but the going research would suggest that you come in hardwired and then you're born into a family that might be really loving and will really well-meaning, but there's no such thing as a perfect family, right? We're humans. True. Yes. Yeah, we yes. mess up. We lose our temper. We drop the ball sometimes. Yeah. And all of those kind of necessary imperfections 
make an impact on us mm-hmm. as a child and we learn to adapt, which is a really important piece. And that adaptation is your type mm. structure. You develop kind of a strategy for navigating the world yeah. based first on how you're hardwired and then you choose the strategy that works best, whatever that is. And it does work. The strategy of your type does work to a degree. Keeps you safe, gives you a sense of self, helps you navigate the world, gives you a role in your family mm-hmm. or in your community. And we begin identifying very closely with that. And so I always say what really saved you as a kid really doesn't serve you as an adult. That's good. And that's what drives a lot of us to onsite is the tools that you have been using suddenly stop working. Yeah. And that is essentially what the Enneagram describes, Mm. is that you over time become very limited by this one way of doing business and you are called to expand. And it can be very scary and very disconcerting, Mm -hmm. but it's a really important and holy practice that you have to engage in over a period of time, really over the course of your lifetime. It's not a one and done deal. Kind of like doing any deeper therapeutic work, you have a lot of important insights. And if you fast forward three years and never put that into practice, you forget them. (laughs) Yeah. So the same thing happens with the Enneagram. It's like the label never transformed anyone. Being a type three or a type six never transformed anyone. But putting that information into your daily practice uh, does, over time, make an impact. Hmm. It's so interesting because I feel like for so many of my peers, I'm in my 40s, that really in our, you know, like mid to late 30s, early 40s started to really look at like it, that's when our patterns started not working. Yeah. Um, and so it sort of sent us into doing our own work, whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. spiritually, yeah. mm-hmm. psychologically, or, you know, with Enneagram. Mm-hmm. But it now those tools are available so for people that are younger. And so they're doing the work so much younger mm-hmm. that it's just, it'll be so interesting seeing what comes of, I guess, I guess midlife crises go away <laughs> in a different way or they get reshaped. But it's just interesting now that people are equipped with the tools before they're in crisis needing them. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it makes me excited for the future, I guess. Well, absolutely. Some of the stigma around doing this deeper developmental work has certainly shifted. For sure. I think... The flip side of it, the danger is you can have the language and you can have the tools and you can be pretty well convinced that you're using them when Mm. actually that's not occurring. Oh, yeah, that's so the spiritual bypass piece is always going to be a danger, I think. Um, So I love the passion of the younger generation and, you know, the, the desire for social justice and there's so many exciting things to your point that I think herald positive things for our future. And at the same time, there's always going to be a need for mentoring. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the older generation to really lend perspective. And that's the part that makes me nervous is that the younger generation can dismiss the older generation, right? So I know that mentorship was something I always craved and I never had. Mm. Do you have that now? I do in many ways, yeah. 
I really do. And it's something that I actively seek out. Yeah, I think that's the big miss a lot of times with people yeah. that seek mentors. Uh-huh. They, they're passively seeking. Uh-huh. And then I think it really takes a boldness of, you know, like not just stating that you want one, but searching for it, mm-hmm. saying what your part of the commitment would be mm-hmm. and making sure that there's, even though you're learning from somebody that is there's ahead of you in some way in your life, that you're pouring back into them in some ways too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'd love to hear more about your mentors though. Yeah. You know, they've come about by really unexpected means. And that's an, a correction I've yeah. had to really make peace with is that who I thought was going to play that role in my life ended up not being that person. Mm. But really kind of broadening my perspective to include people who were actively involved in my life and I didn't really appreciate for what they were contributing Help me identify mentors, some of them younger than me. You know, it's not always the older generation, but I will say uh, the core faculty for the narrative, Mm -hmm. they have been a big piece in my personal work and professional work over the years. Um, I'm lucky to have folks who can do dual roles like that, but they've certainly been a big piece of that. I mean, several of the longtime um, members of the on-site family have been a big piece of that. Angela Thompson and mm. Mary B and uh, Dee Dee Beasley, who I'm yes. a huge fan of. So yeah, I have found many of them, you know, there's that old kind of saying when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. And oh, that's really yeah. been the case. Mm. I felt like I wandered around in the desert for a really long time And the moment that I kind of oriented internally and said, I care enough about myself to invest in healing work, that's when just teacher after teacher after mentor after a mentor came online for me. So yeah, there are many different folks who assist me in very unique ways. Yeah. And it's always a gift. I think one of the misnomers too is that we would find a mentor that would like, you can speak into every area of my life, but hearing you say this, like I have brought in what my view is. I have brought in people who are already in my life and speaking into ways that maybe I didn't see or identify or value. And so even the people that you have in your life, I think like speaking into different areas is what Mm -hmm. I was hearing of Mm -hmm. some of the different pockets. So that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, I think my type nine showing, but I really do feel like it takes a village, Mm -hmm. you know? And shifting that expectation that one person is going to be your best friend mm-hmm. or one person's going to be your teacher, yeah. it, that's something that I really had to let go of over the years and realize that, you know, there are many people who add so many gifts to your life and there's room to appreciate each of them. Your nine is showing that so good, <laughs> It's so beautiful. <laughs> Um, you talked a little bit earlier about kind of the lights coming on and illuminating things. What has what are some of the things that the Enneagram has illuminated for you when you first started digging into it? And maybe even today, what are some of the things that you're learning mm, through that great lens? Good question. That's good. I think to Lindsay's point, there was a huge aha moment that people did not experience life exactly mm. the same way that I did. 
I was convinced they did. And I couldn't understand their reactions and preferences and tendencies until I saw in the Enneagram work that there were such drastic dif- you know, differences between yeah. folks. So I think that was a huge piece. I think that really coming to terms with how self-limiting I mm. could be uh, was a huge piece. You know, I'm my own biggest hurdle in a sense. <laughs> I can get in the way of yeah. uh, my own life and watching that happen in real time was really humbling. Mm. Um, Will you and, say more about that? Yeah. Just like what, what that could look like for somebody. How, are the, mm. how could somebody be getting in their own way? Well, you can or understand to, the Enneagram as the nine different ways that we get in our yeah. own way. Yeah. <laughs> but for me particularly as a nine, it was just minimizing my life, my experiences, my desires, my goals, making that unimportant uh, and focusing on other people as though that was more significant and really, I mean, painting myself into a very small corner mm. and being comfortable doing that. that, that being in service of my own comfort. So remaining kind of comfortably undercharged and disconnected and never asserting myself or, you know, taking risks or even being the first in a conversation to engage always waiting for somebody else to give me permission to show up Hmm. was a really heavy piece of learning. Mm -hmm. So the things that I was, you know, so sorrowful over feeling like I was taking up too much space in the world was actually a dynamic that I perpetuated, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and that's difficult to admit yeah. Scary. Yeah, it is. Because once that realization sets mm. in, then you have automatically, you have responsibility yeah. to do the opposite of what comes most naturally. Mm. Uh, David Daniels always said, comfort is not the friend of a nine. Mm. And I've had to make that a lesser God in my life, which has been just, you know, series a series of foibles and misfortunes <laughs> and getting messy and having to make repairs and, you know, but over time getting more comfortable with the discomfort uh, has been just the biggest relief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's huge growth. And when you're on the other side of that growth, do those new behaviors start to feel natural to you and like mm. authentically you in the same way when you're stepping out of that desire for comfort or? That is a, such a great question. I would Sorry, say. Sorry, it's a very poor question. <laughs> well, yeah. I appreciate that. You I mean, you're the deep like diver. Yes. <laughs> um, I will say that it never feels natural. Yeah. Mm. It always feels like I'm kind of pushing a learning curve, but it's pleasantly rewarding yeah. in a way that it used to be very scary and intimidating. Yeah. So I I just feel like I'm constantly discovering, oh, I'm allowed to be here. You know, people mm. want me here. Yeah. They appreciate my company and mm. there's a place for me. So in that sense, even though it's difficult to put into practice, it's so magical at the same time 
And that's really the thing is your your dominant strategy or Enneagram type is automatic. It's normal. It's natural. You don't think about it. You know, it's easy for you to act out of. And the growth edge is not. It mm. is like hard to practice, hard to remember, hard to value. Yeah. Uh, so there is work associated with it, but it's good work. When you were saying that, you were saying, well, I'm allowed to be here. People want to be in my company. I think it is funny because just as we all have different views of the world, that like that is the truth for you. And being um, outside of you, I would think like that's so, it's so obvious to me that any room that Evan was in, people would want her there. Like I just think you exude so much that it seems so commonplace to me. And so... I just like wanted to affirm you that because I was like, that feels so obvious, but I think it's with the Enneagram. It's with the way that we're wired and the way that we respond mm-hmm. to the world. Like, this is how I see it. This is what I think is true when that is like, it's just so obvious. So I'm glad that you're challenging that and that you're seeing that because that's what feels really true to me is that any room that you would be in, you would bring so much value and so much delight to be in the room Well, with thank you, you so. Mackenzie. That's yeah. always... I just was like... I don't know. Definitely true. And it's it's interesting. Mackenzie is a seven. You're in a more like aggressive or assertive stance of mm-hmm. an Enneagram type. Mm-hmm. So like you come like you're wide open. Yeah. Like when you meet Mackenzie, she's uh-huh. like just this like brightness that uh, shines. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which Thank you. That's very kind. But <laughs> and then I think, you know, with. The, the four that mm-hmm. I am, like the nine is in a more withdrawn stance. Mm-hmm. And so it's really easy to observe. Yeah. And it's comfortable. And so I think that was like one of the things that I wanted to work on more is like one of the patterns of the four is to want, like if you're watching a football game, you want somebody to come invite you out onto the field yeah <laughs> so that you're playing the game. Like you really want to be sought after kind mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. And sort of pushing myself out there sometimes to to do that is different. Yeah. But it, so I have lots. Of, I'm very drawn to eights. So I have a ton of eights in my life. Mm-hmm. Mackenzie is a seven. I have a lot of people that are in that more assertive stance, and they can't understand sometimes. Right. Like well, I think, being more held back. I think naturally. I also I recognize like within myself, I put myself out there because that is how I learned to survive in the world. Is that. I feel insecure and like I don't belong. So I'll just throw myself there and pretend like I do. Like, hello, I'll entertain everyone in spaces where I don't feel like I'm welcome. I will find something to bring a value of you want me here. Um, and sometimes I I always joke like I, I have people in my life who invite me and that feels so loving because yeah. I invite so that I don't not get invited, if that makes yeah. sense to I people. Think that's so. so insightful. And it's... That's where the compassion piece comes in, mm-hmm. I think, with Enneagram work when it's really being held true to form, is that you see this these nine different mm-hmm. strategies or categories as an ongoing expression of a wound from childhood that you had to normalize. Mm. You had to do something with that pain. You had to keep going. And so we continue to kind of act this out over and over again. And when when you're sitting like in a narrative Enneagram panel and you're observing people get in touch with that, you can't not love them. Yeah. You can't not have just enormous mm. respect 
and appreciation for what people have been through. Yeah. So it's a really powerful thing to get into contact with. And you're both kind of describing that in a way. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That makes me think of um, the the group experiential experience too. When you're in a group with people, I think that's what I walked away from my time at LCP was I got just as much out of everyone else's work as I got out of my own because you can't not love these people. And I found that even in being in these podcast conversations with you, Lindsay, every time we get done with someone, I'm like, they were so interesting. This was such a great conversation. And I think when you give people space to talk about themselves, to dig deeper, to ask deeper questions, everyone is beautiful. Everyone has a story and there's so much beauty in that. And that is what I found in LCP. And that's what I found in in life is that Sometimes the people who I think, if I can see from afar, like we would never get along. It's hard to hate people up close. And I think yeah. when people take that step, you really do fall in love with them. Mm-hmm. So it's really the truth. It's so isn't weird. It? It's and just it wild requires to me. that we pause and mm-hmm. actually make eye contact with the person sitting across the table and really listen to what they're reporting. Mm hmm. I asked early on about uh, resources for Mm, someone that's just getting started. For Mm -hmm. somebody that knows a little bit about the Enneagram, but really wants to dive deeper, Mm -hmm. what are some resources that you'd recommend for them? Um, I do love that yellow book, which I've already mentioned, Essential Enneagram. Uh, B. Chestnut's book on the subtypes is just beautiful. I think there's some great things there. There are a ton of articles on Peter's website if you want to get into kind of some depth work. The Narrative Enneagram offers a ton of programming. Hmm. Um, They have a core kind of track. They have a professional track for therapists or coaches who want to dive into it. And we're also launching um, some kind of more accessible programs for folks who are just new to it or exploring or want to focus on you know, the dynamics within the family or, you know, romantic relationships. What is the Enneagram perspective on that? So there are a ton of resources there. I'll actually be teaching. I was invited to teach with Peter and Renee. So so uh, I'll be teaching with them at Scarrett Bennett in 2022. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. It's a big, big honor. I really love Sarah Jane Case. She had the Enneagram and Coffee podcast. She's a pal of mine and really insightful. Uh, there, there are a ton of Resources. great, yes, yes, really great tools out there. Um, I'd love to hear also about sort of the overlap between psychology and the Enneagram. And That's I know good. that you are in a lot of groups with therapists that are learning mm-hmm. about the Enneagram. And for somebody that is looking for a therapist mm-hmm. and they, they've already done some work around the Enneagram or there, what would your advice be for them? Or how, how do you see those two worlds converging and sort of helping uh, somebody really like maximize their own self-understanding? That is a difficult question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have to find the therapist that works best for you. Yep. Period. But I really feel like the Enneagram can be brought into that therapeutic relationship in a productive way by the client leading the charge Mm. and exploring things Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of spearheading the conversation and relying on some of those resources that I mentioned, 
specifically the essential Enneagram is a great way to do that. So it's more kind of like two people in a boat together and maybe the therapist is the river guide, Yeah, you know, kind of calling attention to areas that need support or, you know, opportunities, but it's an equal participatory exercise. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that totally yeah. makes sense. Yeah, that you kind of need to come having done some of your own work and invite your therapist potentially in as another observer to see if that is like, congruent with other things she's hearing you yes that's good. absolutely yeah and I've heard so. you say it and you put it in your pre-interview but I just think it's bearing worth reminding of like therapy is or the Enneagram is not a replacement for therapy you absolutely said that before not. and you're saying yeah. it again and I love how you're talking about putting them in tandem and how they can work so cohesively together mm-hmm. but and that has to be done very mindfully yeah. and you'll know if it's not mm. there will be a cringe factor or you know, you'll stall out in one way or another. So I think making sure that you're not putting too much responsibility on the therapist hmm. to teach you the Enneagram, you, oh, you, for sure. you can right. really do a great deal of that yourself. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with thank us. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. It's and I privilege. feel like there's, it feels like therapy in that digging, you find more and more richness about yourself. And it's really a journey and not a destination. So Mm -hmm. thanks. Is there a practice that you have that you do kind of every day to stay centered? Ooh, good question. I think that doing the artist way many years ago, that just changed all kinds of things. So I'd still carry over that morning pages practice where you write three blank pages with stream of consciousness writing that really helps give me direction and helps me feel some sense of clarity. Um, and then also having some type of physical practice, like going for a jog, is a really big deal mm, yeah. for me as a nine. So I don't enjoy it, but <laughs> I get a lot of benefit out of it when I do it. That's great. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.